we don't need blame, we need atonement. And so Jesus lifts up and perfects the law. He becomes the sacrifice that none of us could be. Hey there, church. Um, you know, Deuteronomy deals a great deal with this question, what is life and what it is it, what is to have life? Um, for the Israelites, they are looking over into the promised land and asking that question, what is life going to be for us when we're in that place? For a lot of us, we are exploring that question every day as we make decisions about who we are, about who we'll be, about what we will do. In this passage, we jump into some of the passages that actually deal with murder and with killing uh, and with the giving, not so much the giving, but the taking of life. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to ask some of those questions today. Um, I, hope, I hope it is helpful and beneficial to you. God bless. Our text, our text today is Deuteronomy 19, um, and it's, it's verse 1 through 22:12. I know that's it's a lot. I'm not going to sit here and read it all, so I will sort of pull it up um, as, we, as we come to the relevant verses. Um, I don't know that everything is in the slideshow, so, um, so Dave, don't worry about that when I get to that point. Um, but as I'm Reading through this, this chunk of scripture, um, as in many places in Deuteronomy, um, I'm sort of left with the question, what, what is life? And how do we secure the life that we want um, and expect for ourselves? A lot of us are kind of in this place of, of trying to do just that, of um, trying to make the life that we expected become reality. How am I going to get the family that I want, right? How will I raise the family that I, want, that I always wanted? How will I raise them in the way that I wanted to raise them? How do I take care of those that are close to me in a way that's faithful? Some of us are raising our grandchildren or our kids have moved back in with us, and that's an interesting question. It's not always life as we expected it. Sometimes, um, sometimes life doesn't follow the script exactly, right? <laughs> And some of us are now caring for our parents. We have a close relationship, and, but the roles have been reversed, um, and our parents are now dependent on us. And that's not always life as we expected or planned. It has a way of sort of breaking in on us there, too. But we often are asking that question, how is it that I obtain life? And if we go outside the church... We find people who will say pretty quickly that life is in wealth, and all of us go, no, 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 of course it's not. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> this week I was preparing for uh, youth group on Wednesday. Uh, Monet, we do still have youth group on Wednesday. I just wanted you to know that. All right, good. Um, 
And um, we're going through the book of James, and there's this verse in, in the first chapter of James, talks about wealth as essential, and the wealthy as a wildflower that bloom and look good and then fade, um, fade out. And so in part of preparing for that, I was watching YouTube videos, as I sometimes do, and there's this video comes up of all of these famous and rich people, Jim Carrey and, uh, who was it, Lady Gaga, Tupac, people talking about how, how empty wealth and fame are, right? How they don't actually fill you up or give you the life that you want or expect. And of course, I'm supposed to believe that wealth and riches and fame will not give me the life that I really need because wealthy and rich and famous people are telling me <laughs> that it's not the life that I really need. I just found that kind of interesting. The thing that gives them credibility is also the thing they're telling me not to trust, right? I'm a lot more convinced when I see somebody who has decided that life consists, that life obtains in those things which are more permanent, somebody who takes care of their mother day in and day out. Sometimes without complaining. I'll allow a little complaining. <laughs> I'm convinced by, in particular, a guy I know named Dave Coburn, who was a part of the pilgrimage program that when we helped with uh, Feed the Homeless down at First Church downtown. And Dave was somebody I, I hadn't met before. Um, he would show up every single night. He ran the program. He built relationships with dozens and dozens of, of homeless folk. And, and I mean, not just kind of know your name relationships. Like he was close friends with people and had helped people get off the street, started this program that enabled people to build some employment experience and um, able to put something on their resume, and he was able to help so many people, but he was only able to do it by, in his retirement, being on call 14 or so nights a month, by dealing with people who would have driven you and me just cynical and crazy, the kind of questions and problems and concerns that they had, the way that people were sometimes intentionally even disruptive or destructive. But Dave was there, kind of in the midst of all of it, doing it under the radar, doing it graciously, doing it kindly. He could have been doing anything. He really could have. He had all kinds of gifts and abilities. And I find out as he's retiring last year that he had promised to do this thing for two years. And instead he'd been doing it, what was it, six or seven he'd been doing it for, Rosalie? He was just somebody who had given his life to that, not because it was easy, but because to give, your, to give your life to such things is actually where real, capital L, life is. That's where the life that Christ promises is, not in our ability to construct the things that we need and secure the, our own comfort, but in the ability to love and serve in the name of Christ. That kind of example makes me go, okay, <laughs> you know, life is not in my own self-expression. But in order for me to be joyful and full of life, I don't need to be happy in the shallow sense. And this may seem like a far cry from our subject today, but I think, I think you'll get it if we listen just a little bit closely. So this is Deuteronomy 19. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations, remember, this is 
Israel right out the plains of Moab. They're right on the banks of the Jordan. They're looking over the river into the land that God has promised them, and they're about to cross that river and go in and take it. And so God, through Moses, is giving them the law of how they ought to live in that place. He says, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills the neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of those cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promises to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all the commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Well, I, I mean, I think we have a mixed reaction to texts like this. Um, on the one hand, we see God making a provision for those who accidentally kill somebody, right? We, we might call it manslaughter in our, in our terminology. There's this accidental death that occurs and one person is responsible. In kind of a tribal nomadic culture that Israel lived in, the, assu the assumption would have been that you would you have somebody in your family go enact vengeance on the one who just killed. So let's say you go out into the woods, like it says, you're chopping wood, the, the head of your axe slips off, clocks somebody in the jaw, they're dead. Now, now there's, the problem is you have a family that depended on that person, right? And so there's got to be some sort of justice. And so here comes your kind of biggest, meanest looking cousin, and he's going to march out and he's going to take vengeance on the one who just accidentally killed this person. And, and this is the way that feuds get started, right? This is the Hatfields and the McCoys. And so it's like this clan is going to go to war against this clan because they accidentally killed somebody. Okay, fine, I guess. But in their process of enacting justice, they take just a little too much, right? They don't just take a pound of flesh. They take 1.1 pounds of flesh. They don't just... It's not just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They take a little bit of an ear along with them. And that's the way that vengeance goes. It's like it's back and forth and you never quite get it exactly even. All the eyes and the teeth stack up on this side and they're never quite balanced with the eyes and the teeth on this side. And so God sets up this system. Remember in a world where there are no police, there's no Jerusalem police force. 
There's no standing army. The only way for there to be justice is for individual families and clans to take care of it. So God sets up three cities, he says, and you are to measure the distance between them, which is kind of ancient Hebrew for make a nice road, okay? It's not just like a janky little two-lane road with a bunch of potholes so that as you're trying to flee, you know, you're shaking your your car's breaking down. You need to make like a freeway that somebody can just get on and fly. It's like, you know those Wyoming speed limits? It's like 90 degrees or, or 90, 90 miles an hour or however fast you want to go, really. I remember driving to Montana. I moved out to Kansas City when I was like 20-something. Driving, driving through Montana, my, my 2004 Honda Civic is loaded up to the gills with a bike on the back. And, and I, like, I can't even go the speed limit. I'm, I'm like flooring it. And I, the speed limit is 90 through some of, their, some of those places. And I can't go that fast. And so these trucks with the gun racks and everything are just blowing past me on these hills. And that's what God says. He says, make a big, wide road so that somebody who's running from this posse that wants to take him out can get there quickly. Right? And when he does, the elders of the city will welcome him in. They'll hit the pause button on justice, and they'll say, wait a second, we need to have a trial. We need to figure out what's really going on here. Now, it's important for us to understand what God envisions. These cities are not a place for people to escape justice, right? They're not a place where we say we're trying to get out of murder. They're a realistic solution to the physical problems that justice pre presented in their world. How do you allow appropriate time for investigation and trial? In a world without police, in a world without jails, how do you allow somebody to take a deep breath so we can discover was this an accidental murder or was this on purpose? And then once a decision is reached, we can kind of move forward with the right way of acting, right? So God is setting up a society where justice is at the fore. Okay, flip over to chapter 21. Now he says, if in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, this is 21 verse 1, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, that is not pulled on a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's a similar concern. In chapter 21, in this, in this case, right, this is kind of like CSI ancient Israel. There's a body that's found out in the middle of a field. Nobody knows. We don't have fingerprints. 
There's maybe some footprints that go in a, in a particular direction, but then we lose them, right? Someone's just dead, and we don't know who to blame. And so what are we, the people of God living in this city, supposed to do about this body that we have found in our parking lot, essentially? The nearest city becomes responsible for the act. And then there's these rituals that are supposed to be performed that no one in the city who has authority or power has seen what is going on, right? They bring out this heifer. They confess. We don't know what happened. Do you notice what kind of animal they bring out? It's a heifer that has not been worked, right? A female cow has not been worked. You don't bring out a cheap sacrifice, right? You bring out like a brand new Ford F-250 or like a, a new John Deere harvester. That's what these animals were, right? They would pull in the yoke. They would make sure that everything got planted and, and worked the way it was supposed to. So this is a brand spanking new tractor. This is a nice truck, and you're bringing it out, and you're just slaughtering it right there in this field. And they testify they know nothing about the shedding of the blood. If we read 19 a little bit closer, you would see in 15 to 21, verse 15 to 21, we can be sure that no one is lying because of the penalty that there is for false testimony. But look closely at 21, verse 8 to 9. It says, Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. For you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Do you see what these provisions are doing? The Lord makes these provisions for them. Cities of refuge, sacrifices for when someone is murdered without any culprit. And when we see these things, when we see somebody killed, when we see murder, or even when we see manslaughter, an accidental killing, there is something in us that cries out for justice. Right? We want to know who to blame. Who's guilty for that act? And, and as we blame them, we then believe that we can assign some sort of punishment to that person that is going to deal with the problem. That, that if I know who killed, then I know who to send to prison, or then I know who to put on the stand, then I know who to assign to the death penalty. But that's not the way that Israel ultimately sees this, because yes, there is the sort of horizontal concern, right? The concern of equality and justice among the people, that this clan is not going to go to war with this clan, so we want to make sure that justice is dealt with. But the ultimate question is actually vertical. The ultimate question is actually between the people of God and God. And that's the deeper problem. And I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture, our society doesn't know how to deal with that. We want to think. We want to believe that if we could just have an equal world where everybody started on the same foot, where everybody started at the same starting line and, and then we kind of had perfect freedom and we had perfect equality and everybody had perfect opportunity that if we could just establish a society in a world where everybody has equal opportunity for these things, then we will live in a just world. That's what we want to think, but that's missing a major portion of what it even is to be human. 
because we are not simply meant to compete against each other in this world for opportunities. It's not just about who can work the hardest or overcome the biggest obstacles. Our ultimate concern, yes, it starts horizontal, but our ultimate concern is vertical. Are we a people who have understood what it is to be atoned for in Jesus Christ? Our world wants to look for blame. God wants to atone for the problem. God wants to make us right before him, restore life to his community, restore life to families, restore life to people. And he doesn't do it just by bringing somebody back from the dead who's been killed in a field. Do you remember back to Pastor Cody when he preached, when he preached on the Ten Commandments? And he reminded us that the Lord says, thou shalt not kill, right? Do not murder, because a murder in God's land is a way of saying, hey, I'm the one who's in charge of life. I'm the one who takes away life when I see fit. And in God's world, we know that all life is given by God. Ultimately, all life is taken by God and that killing separates us from God and from all that is truly good. It separates us from all those ways that we try to set up life for ourselves. The ways that we try to obtain and create and establish life in our families, the way we try to create and obtain and establish life in our work, the ways that we do it in our recreation, the ways that we do it in our service. God, if we do those things without God, we will never find life. And so instead, the Lord here makes a way for Israel to be atoned atonement and you may have heard you may have heard the kind of breakdown of that word i don't know if it's true or not but it gets at something important which is that to be atoned is to be made at one right that atonement is at one mint it's where killing separates us from the lord it separates us from our families it separates us from our communities but to be made one to be made one again is to be atoned before god There's one other important aspect here, which is that sin has a way of spilling out beyond just you, beyond just me. It has a way of spilling out into the world around us. It taints whole cities and whole groups of people. I mean, that's why it's the elders of the city who go out to atone for the sin of somebody that they don't even know who it is. Did you notice that? You've got the elders of a city who are going out over this body. They don't know who is to blame, and yet there are still things for them to do to atone for the problem. When one person sins, the effects are really and truly corporate. When you sin, it's not just about you. It doesn't stay confined to you. When you sin, it ripples out all over the place. Genesis shows us we know kind of the Adam and Eve sin, right? They're there at that tree, and they eat that fruit. But it's not long before we're in Genesis 4 where Cain is killing his brother Abel. And it's not long before Cain is then traveling through the wilderness and setting up cities. And each one of those cities, if you read the text really closely, those cities become the center of sin that ripples out and establishes sin in the world so that God then sends the flood to cleanse. 
the sin just kind of moves out and out and out in concentric circles. And just like the Hatfields and the McCoys and the clans trying to kill each other and go after each other and find justice, we never find the balance. But it just continues to spread. It continues to spread. The end of the fall narrative, right? We think of the fall sometimes as just Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve rebel. The end of the fall narrative is actually Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel when all humanity is splintered and divided and separated and isolated from one another, unable even to speak to each other because God has broken and splintered them. And we see it in our world. We see it and we bear the result of violence between, for example, the police and those who are policed. We bear the pain as a community of Fawn Clark shooting. We bear the pain of Officer Mark Stasiuk's killing up on Folsom Boulevard. We hold that and we suffer from that. And if there is no atonement made, and the community can't be at one. The damage from these events doesn't just go away because the news cycle moves on. And we need more than just a change in the representation of the system if we are going to find peace as a city. Sin breaks us, it cracks us, it hollows it out, it creates spots that are vulnerable to rot and to corruption and decay. We need atonement. We need to be made whole. And I, and I don't just point to kind of big events there, but I, I raise those up simply because they, we have all heard about them. If we really want to start this kind of work of helping others, it begins with us finding and searching and proclaiming and living into the atonement of Christ. It begins with us being able to see where we have failed and where we need atonement. Where can I take the presence of God through prayer and act of love into a situation that has a dead body, so to speak, but no culprit? How can I walk into that conflict that has raged in my family where everybody has been cutting each other up for years, for so long that there's no longer anybody to blame because everybody's to blame. Everybody has blood in their hands. Everybody has broken the rules. Everybody has poked out eyes and knocked out teeth. Everyone is guilty. And we don't ultimately need to assign blame. We need atonement. We need to be made one. We need to be made whole. We need confession and forgiveness and a wholeness that moves us beyond the need to settle on blame. And so how does all of this come forward? I mean, we are, we confess, a New Testament people, right? We are a people of Jesus Christ. We're the church of the Nazarene, Jesus being raised in Nazareth. Did you pick up on it? Did you see the hints that are in the text? The hints in chapter 21 that, that we can read further on. This is from chapter 21, verses 
22 and 23. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. If you were found guilty of murder, you were to be, your body was to be hanged on a tree. I know that's rough. Um, I don't know. <laughs> they lived in a rough world. You know, we live in a rough world even though we try to avoid it. But that was the thing. If you were guilty of murder, you were to be hanged on a tree. And Paul in Galatians, did you hear what, who was it? Was it Nathan that read that? How Paul brings this forward? He uses this exact verse to demonstrate that the curse and the punishment, which is the right and just response to sin, but which you and I cannot personally bear, has been born by us, born for us by Jesus Christ. Did you see that? That Jesus says, or Paul says that he hung on the tree, the cross, that he was faithful, that he followed God into the deepest and darkest valley where you and I fail and falter, and that Christ in himself fulfilled the law that we could not. That there were things in this law that we could not bear, that you're guilty and that I'm guilty, and if this law was going to be carried out, we're all toast. But because of God's grace, he has done something for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself has hung on the tree. He's hung on the wood of the cross. And as he hung on the wood of the cross, Jesus himself bore the curse that you and I should have borne. And so here's, here's the next thing. Remember the body's out in the field and then the elders have to come out and they need to deal and make atonement for that body that's in the field, right? And they bring out this heifer that's never been worked. And the heifer is killed in that field, and then what? And then they wash their hands over it and say, I am innocent of this blood. Remember back to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus, not a Ford F-250 and not a heifer that's never been worked, but the most precious thing that God ever sent Israel, the most precious Son that God ever sent Israel, the fulfillment of all prophecy and a prophet himself, the fulfillment of all worship and a priest himself, the fulfillment of David and, and a king himself. He is the one who goes out into that field. And Pilate, the elder of Jerusalem, washes his hands over Jesus' body and says, I am innocent of this blood. And we live in a world where sin has so overtaken everything that all we can do is point fingers and every single one of us is guilty. And we can point all the way back to Adam and Eve, but it doesn't do us any good to assign blame. We don't need blame, we need atonement. And so Jesus lifts up and perfects the law. He becomes the sacrifice that none of us could be. You see, just as sin has this corporate effect, that means that the elders of a city need to come out and make atonement. So Jesus' sacrifice also has a corporate effect. His righteousness and his faithfulness and his holiness is not, it's not kept just within Jesus, 
but because of his sacrifice and because of his resurrection from the dead, that righteousness and that faithfulness and that holiness is actually spilled out on us in concentric circles, in ripples that goes out so that we then not, we don't only participate in Adam and Eve's sin, we now participate in Jesus Christ's righteousness. And so his sacrifice becomes like medicine. It becomes like bleach that goes into this place that's full of sickness and death and instead wipes out and kills that sickness and death. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus becomes the curse in the way that anti-venom becomes like a poison in order to kill the poison. Jesus becomes human and takes on our death in order to kill death. John 5, 24, what we read in the gospel reading. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And how do we come into that life? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Hearing that Jesus himself is the word of life, believing and confessing and living that there is no life outside of him. And all of our ways of trying to make life for ourselves, all of the ways of trying to set up our families and set up our work and set up our hobbies and set up the things that are comfortable and nice and fun for us, all of that is just an imitation of the life that we have in Christ. All of that is just an imitation of the grace that we receive by believing in him. All of that is just reaching and grasping toward the main thing, devoting our, ourselves, our career, our family to God and to his purposes. So my question today is whether you're still muddling around with half measures, are you trying to use God as a rung on the ladder to reach this thing that we call happiness? Or do you recognize that God is the thing that we're reaching toward in the first place? Are you trying to make a decent life out of what you've been given? Or are you trusting that Christ himself is life itself? God has given you all that you need for holiness. He's given you all that you need for real life in him. Bring what you have. Bring it to the altar today. Confess and believe. Trust and know that life is only in the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for um, your gift of mercy, that you have not left us alone, that you have not abandoned us to ourselves or left us in our sin, but you have instead, you have instead opened up yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ so that we might be made whole in him. As we come to the table, Lord, help us to receive that gift. so much for sticking with us. Um, hey, this week we have an opportunity to 
explore some of what life looks like for those in our community on Saturday. We will be gathering to do some volunteering at the Rosemont Community Association's um, annual celebration. So if you want to be a part of that, please feel free uh, to email me, Cordova Naz Pastor, C-O-R-D-O-V-A-N-A-Z-P-A-S-T-O-R at A-T-T dot net. Um, you can also make, give me a call. Most of you have my phone number. And we just want to set up a chance where we can be of service to the neighborhood, of service to our neighbors. We are not necessarily looking to preach at every moment uh, there, but we want to proclaim through our action the love of Christ and the way that, that Christ cares for and loves our neighbors. So if you want to be involved, please give me um, give me a holler, give me a ring. This is Pastor Jeff, and uh, yeah, I hope I get to see you soon. Um, and I, I hope this week um, that you are able to to really seek and discover the way that God is calling you into new life uh, in the place where you are, in the place where you're working, in the family that you find yourself in. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing good stories. All right, take care.